Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How about a nice second hour of primetime on a Friday night? I'll be here anyway. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome back. This president tells us, Don't believe what comes out of my face. And then he won't even stick around to explain himself. That's not sarcasm. That's the cold, hard truth. Kyung La shows us right now. Thank you very much, everyone. The headline out of the White House briefing, not what was said, but what wasn't. Mr. President. The president left abruptly without taking any questions, unlike all the previous marathon events. A source tells CNN Trump is upset over the flack he's taken for his strange and dangerous musings yesterday. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs. Then today... No, I was asking a question sarcastically. President Trump again, trying to rewrite history the whole world saw on television. A bizarre spectacle as the U.S. death toll crosses 50,000 lives lost. And states unevenly start to open on their own. When they come in, we will do temperature checks. They will be required to have a mask and glove. In Georgia, now allowed to operate are hair salons, gyms, and bowling alleys. We're not trying to hurt anybody. If you look, we just want to get a business going. Defying public health warnings, Georgia and Oklahoma allowed doors to open at some businesses, although many chose to stay closed. In Texas, curbside retail is open. I walk out to their trunk, put them in there, or go in the front seat. The state pushed to restart the economy, happening from the South, the Midwest to Alaska. A real-time experiment of the virus versus state policies. In South Carolina, department stores are now open with some restrictions. Wisconsin, golf courses, and some retail open curbside. Alaska, restaurants allowed to open at a quarter of capacity. Into the weekend and next week, more states open up. Tennessee will be allowing restaurants to open at half capacity on Monday, saying it's time. It must be steady and methodical and empower opening in a way that doesn't jeopardize all of the strides that we've made. But other local leaders say that's exactly what governors are doing by opening now. This is a premature and reckless decision on behalf of Um, the the governor. New York's governor warned the country must learn from our very recent history as testing continues to be inadequate. What is the lesson? An outbreak anywhere is an outbreak everywhere. That's why Michigan's governor, facing small but vocal right-wing protests to reopen, is extending the stay-at-home order for her state until May 15th. We know that if we do it too fast, a second wave is likely and would be even more devastating. Kyung Law, CNN, Los Angeles. 
Harder thanks to Kyung. Listen, the president can lie to you and say he was being sarcastic. Um, but leadership is about ownership, all right? And the impact of his words are evident. When the mayor of Los, Angeles, uh, Las Vegas, okay, points to their desert heat as if it will protect Sin City. You see, our leaders can't be in the business of selling stupid, okay? I'm not sure why the heat in Vegas would do what heat in Arizona or Florida or Louisiana certainly hasn't. You see, and you can't combat stupid if you get caught up saying stupid things. And that's why the remedy for stupid is science, knowledge, all right? So let's deal in that with a doctor of infectious disease, Larry Brilliant. Boy, it's got to be tough to live up to that name. Welcome back to primetime. Hello, Chris. You've got a name to live up to as well. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Well done. Well done. It doesn't sound or look anywhere near as good as yours. So messaging. OK, you're in the you're in the business of science, but messaging matters uh, when it comes to what is true and what is not, because people are always skeptical, especially now, especially when it's coming out of politicians. Do you fear the effect of whether it's the mayor in Vegas saying, well, the heat will make a difference out here or the president not owning the absurdity that came out of his mouth about the disinfectants or about hydro, uh, you know, about a hydroxychloroquine uh, or about how testing's not good or how people should liberate their states against these unfair orders. What's the net effect? It's very difficult. Um, you know, I looked up uh, the use of bleach in medicine uh, on my favorite uh, medical uh, search engine called Google. <laughs> And all I could find was a nurse named Kimberly Fowler, who was a serial killer, who uh, 12 years ago used bleach and uh, killed five of her patients by injecting it intravenously. Uh, she went to jail. Um, I think she's still in jail. It, it's, it's understandable to make a wordo. Uh, it's difficult when you're in the spotlight. We all know that. But he, anybody should quickly correct it. Uh, People hear this and they don't know, they just don't know what to think. It just creates such confusion. Um, I, I wish that people would correct the mistakes. God, I make lots of mistakes, but I try to correct them. Never one. We have never had an experience where this president took ownership for something that he said that was fallacious, misleading, untrue, or absurd. Uh, and instead, he gets his friends on the fringe right to say, oh, you know, he was right about UV light. There are a lot of people, you know, there's a product out there and that's the, what he was referring to. And, you know, the disinfectant thing, you know, here's what he actually said. And if you look at it really closely and he said he was being sarcastic, oh, and not giving him the benefit of the doubt is really unfair. No, uh, not owning it is what's unfair. And then you get into the implications of it. Um, so hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine, okay, it may help people. You have anecdotal evidence. We don't have the science based evidence. The president was way out in front of it. Now you got the FDA uh, putting out a strong warning. Why and what is the state of play with that drug? You know, I have personal experience with it. I lived in India for 10 years and I had malaria uh, at least four times. And twice I was treated with chloroquine, I think once with hydroxychloroquine. Um, it's a brutal disease, but malaria is a uh, that's a brutal medicine. Malaria is a brutal disease. Um, I, you know, the malaria that I had was less troublesome than the chloroquine. But I have to say that uh, hydroxychloroquine saves a lot of lives with malaria. But it doesn't work with COVID. 
And the, the idea of promoting it over and over again uh, has caused the drugstores to dry up. Uh, and they don't have hydroxychloroquine in store. And people with lupus and other diseases who really need it and for which it is the proper uh, prescription can't get it now. So once again, I think that we have to be careful what we say. And look, let's lead with the science. I mean, I'm all for any drug that winds up making this better. If I didn't have to suffer through what I did, I would have taken anything. In fact, I did. You know what I mean? Anything that was offered to me, um, I took. And, you know, and I know, look, I know people are going to come after uh, me after this segment and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, uh, the Mayo Clinic and other people use bleach and baking soda in baths. I'm talking about ingesting it. We're talking about something very different here. Okay, we're not talking about bathing it. We're not talking about topical applications. We're talking about putting disinfectant in your body. People were Googling disinfectant and not the word bath, injection. That's why I'm bringing it up. So, you know, let, let's not uh, make a mistake about what we're focusing on here. Now, the future at home tests are coming out, but they're still dependent on the supplies that we can't get. Right. The reagent, the swabs. So what do you think the future looks like? Let's say the next 10 months. I'm optimistic if you give me 10 months, uh, if you restrict me to a month or two, it's going to be a close call. Uh, some of the saliva tests, the, the pinprick tests for a drop of blood, at-home tests that look like pregnancy tests, everybody in the business knows that's what we need. And we need it widespread. Uh, I heard Tony Fauci yesterday uh, say at the, time, uh, at the Time 100 event that he thought that we would need one and a half million tests a month. Uh, that's getting up to the, the numbers that I think that we're going to have to have. Uh, eventually, I think we'll have to have hundreds of millions of tests that are available without a prescription. You can call into the drugstore and have it delivered to you. Until we have that, we're blinded by not knowing where this dangerous virus is. And don't get wowed by the numbers, you at home, and say, this is unreasonable. You guys are asking for too much. We do the same thing with the flu. You know, we get the flus, we, you know, the tests, we have the same kind of issues about the vaccine. This is not unnormal. To have to scale up is not unnormal. To reopen, to do things where you don't know what you're unleashing by doing it, that's what's not normal. Dr. Larry Brilliant, thank you for helping us understand thank things you. a little bit better. Thank you, Chris. Be have well. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. You too. All right, up next, we're taking you to the front lines, all right? Uh, the fight against coronavirus. Dr. Na Dr. Anthony Lino is saving lives in New York hotspot. He has good reason to believe this virus was among us as early as January. Why? Answer next. Thanks, Doc. Talking to you is always very stimulating. Are you feeling better? I'm starting to. You know, the, the recovery uh, took me by surprise. Um, I am still warm. Uh, I can still, uh, if I do any exercise or if I move around, if I'm too active, if I get too pissed off, I still get warm <laughs> and my temperature will go up a couple of degrees fast. I've been tested negative for COVID. I have the IgM and IgG antibodies. You do both. Yeah, I did the Lenco test and I did the yep. New York State uh, put the drops on the five different circles test. But 
But Chris, you know, having both of those tests uh, positive, those are your get out of jail free card. Uh, I know. You're, you're but here's gonna... my thing. Here's my thing. Having the New York Post chew on my ass is one threshold. Um, my concern is I don't care about the perception of me being out or doing whatever I'm doing. Um, I have played this super safe the whole time. I ignored the CDC 72 hour guideline, even though I passed it because I didn't accept a fever under 100 being me being normal because my normal temperature is 97 plus. So I kept doing it. Um, My point is, when am I going to be me again? Um, When is my temperature going to be 97 ordinarily again? And I didn't know about any of this cytokine and the residual and the inflammation Now I do. Now I got this virologist on the payroll, you know, who's an epidemiologist who's saying you have inflammatory markers in your blood. You're prone to inflammation. You get sinus infections, subclinical colitis. Um, You know, you have it in your blood. You got low IgM naturally. You know, I'm low normal naturally. He's like, you're going to have inflammatory response. And part of that will be low grade fever. Um, And it's going to come and go. He said, maybe for three or four weeks. Yeah. And I was like, what? Who's your, who's, who's your virologist? So I've been working with the guys at Regeneron uh, and um, my, uh, my regular doctor, what do you call it? My internist is working with an epidemiologist at Columbia Presbyterian. Um, and then I'm working uh, with a, a doctor called um, Roxana Nav- Navmati, who is also an epidemiologist. Uh, she is integrative medicine, East and West. Because I'm open, man. It's nothing like being sick and scared to make you a guinea pig. I'll take anything. She comes with IV bags of glutathione and NAD, and I'll take it all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the next thing you're going to need is you're going to get like a Coachella armband that says, I am okay to talk to and touch and hug because you're going to be free and uh, you're going to be able to go places that uh, others will not be able to go. So there's a little reward yeah. at the end of this trial. Just don't mind the sweating. I understand. Oh, I'm sorry. I sweat at the drop of a hat. I got the door wide open right now. All right, I got to jump, Doc. Be well. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Be well. Pleasure's mine. All right, so let's discuss the reality. Is New York flattening the curve? Yes. But what does that mean about what the people on the front line are still seeing every day? There's no let up. Why? Because flattening means the rate of increase of cases is going down. So people on the front lines have been overwhelmed from jump. That means they're still overwhelmed, severely sick patients still coming in more than they can handle. The doctor you see here is Anthony Lino. He had to pronounce six people dead in one shift. Okay, the average is about one. So please don't buy into this hype. Well, this is what they signed up for. This is what they do. Please. 
Okay, not under these circumstances, not without, you know, the protective gear that they assumed was there and under equipped and overwhelmed. That's not what anybody signs up for. Dr. Lino is the director of emergency medicine at a hospital that's been one of the major hotspots here in New York State, St. Joseph's Medical Center in Yonkers. It's a privilege to have him on the show tonight. Doc, bless you and your colleagues uh, for keeping the rest of us safe. Thank you very much, Chris. It's good to be with you tonight. Um, we can't let fatigue get in the way of the facts. I know we all want to reopen. I know it's not fair to you that people are being so selfish. Remind people, what is your daily reality now that everybody thinks things are getting better? I think we're still seeing a lot of patients who are sick. It's no doubt we're on the backside of the peak, which is good. We're not seeing it like we were several weeks ago. But on no way has this been easy. Uh, there's still a lot of people, particularly the older folks uh, coming in from nursing homes, predisposing illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, emphysema, things like that, who are hit particularly hard by this. Um, it, we do everything we can for them, but there, there's clearly such a risk uh, to them. And it's so sad when you watch people just go through what they go through, particularly when they're alone. What is the hardest part medically with what you're dealing with right now? I think medically, we all trained. We all had a, a, a blueprint, a game plan of how we approach things. This disease has been so devastating. It's been for people have been often so rapid uh, deterioration that we cannot uh, almost keep up with it. We've gotten a lot better. We've gotten a lot better as we've gone on at it, but it's still been difficult to, to treat. You know, one of the most basic things that we've, that's evolved, that we figured out is proning. I know some other people have talked about this, but getting people on their stomach, um, and they tend to breathe much better that way, which is kind of counterintuitive. Most people that have respiratory failure, we tended to intubate as an aggressive early intervention, uh, and they did better. In this case, it's not, and we had to learn that on the fly. Fortunately, there's some national uh, collective data that, that comes out. So when you stay up on it, you, you make these adjustments and your staff makes these adjustments on the fly. Now, you mentioned something earlier that I know you can't train for, uh, the emotional toll. Uh, yes, you've had to watch people die. You're not a newbie. Uh, you're aware of the realities. Six in a day, six times the average people dying alone. This is new. Uh, you guys are having to go above and beyond uh, to be consolers, to be the last face that people see because they can't have their families. We've heard stories all over the country that just break my heart about you guys using FaceTime so families can see their loved ones. That's about you people. That's not about policy. How hard is it for you emotionally to be in those situations? It's crushing to do it time after time. Uh, we've all been had tough days. We've all had particularly tough and heartbreaking cases. It's unusual to have so many uh, work all day and then go home, go to bed, and then hit it again the next day in the same way and realize that, that the same thing is going to happen. Um, none of us, there's no way to train for that. It's just hard. Uh, Particularly, a lot of the people who went into the hospital were having conversations with their family because they didn't feel good. 
uh, in generic terms, or maybe they had a cough and a fever, who would imagine that in a very, very relatively short time, they would have had respiratory failure, potentially been intubated and never have gotten to, spoke, to speak to their family again. Uh, the next time the family is talking to somebody, you know, we would call them for updates, but uh, being so pressed for time, there's almost only so much time you can spend on a phone. And at some point I'm on the phone discussing with a family member the death of their loved one uh, time and time again. And that is just soul crushing for all of us. What are you seeing in your staff? What kind of toll is this taking? Not just the hours, not walking around uh, like spacemen in PPE, if you're blessed enough to have all that you need. Um, having to take this home to the extent that they get home, not being able to be as in close contact with their own loved ones because they're worried about what they're bringing home, having to deal with this kind of emotional disconnect between the families and their loved ones. What do you see uh, in the faces of the people you're working with? It's across the board. You'll see people get angry out of uh, uh, disproportionately to the events that are happening. You'll also see people just randomly sit at the desk and maybe break down and start crying. Um, somebody will say, you know, what's what's wrong? Uh, we all know what's wrong, but you, you, there's only so much you can do. Eventually, that release valve just comes out. Uh, and sometimes people just had a step back for uh, at least a few minutes sort of catch their breath because the next patient is coming in and you have to go back after it again. I know how maddening it is for you guys to hear reckless uh, voices and politics and policies that only create strain for you and more danger for the people that you're going to be treating. You're not a politician. I know that you believe you saw cases as far back as January. Uh, I'm not going to put any political burden on you because that's a controversial thing right now. The data will tell us the truth about how long it's been around. And we're certainly wrong about everything we've thought so far about cases and density and timing. We'll see what uh, the reality is about how long we've been dealing with this. But here's what we know for sure. Dr. Lino, you are the best of us. Uh, and please convey our love and our respect to the men and women who are doing the job for you up in Yonkers at St. Joe's. I really will, and I appreciate your support. We're in the eye of the storm, and we're going to continue to hang in uh, to the greatest possible extent we can. So thank you again. You are the best of us. You're taking care of the rest of us, and without you, we have no shot. So be well and stay healthy, and let me know whatever you need. We're a call away. All right? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Now, yes, yes. Uh, New York, coronavirus epicenter, right? The Navajo Nation is not far behind. The what? The Navajo Nation. Since when do we talk about reservations? Since when do we talk about Native Americans? Since right now. The Navajo Nation is the largest reservation in America. It has the country's third highest rate of coronavirus infection. Why? You will be disgusted by the reason why. You will be appalled at what they are trying to do, what they have to do to get help. Please watch the next segment right after this. All right, when you think of New York and New Jersey as having the highest coronavirus infection rates in the U.S., um, makes sense. The big states, right? Travel hubs, density, big cities. What about number three? Guess what it is? California? Seattle? Texas? No. 
the Navajo Nation, the largest Native American reservation, dealing with a number of mounting and unique challenges in battling COVID-19. I know that you're not used to hearing about what's happening on the reservations, and that is a disgrace in and of itself. But tonight on this show, it ends now. Let's be joined by President of the Navajo Nation, Jonathan Nez. Uh, it is good to see you, sir. Thank you for being with us. Good evening, Chris, and thank you for having us on the show. Well, look, I'm sorry it took this, and I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Um, please uh, let the audience understand what you're dealing with. Well, as of this evening, Chris, we have a total number of tests that I've given are 9,360. So we have been aggressively testing our citizens here on the Navajo Nation. Of those uh, positive cases, 1,540. Negative result, 6,893. And we have 58 deaths here on the Navajo Nation. 27,000 square miles of land, 350,000 uh, population here of Navajo citizens. And Chris, let me just say that I want to say thank you to your brother. He's doing a great job. Andrew, there in the state of New York, we're starting to team up together and we're looking at ways to where we can partner in the future. We're going to be sending up some gloves. You know, that we, we have a, our own latex glove manufacturing facility here on the Navajo Nation. And so we want to bless uh, the state of New York, their healthcare professionals that are on the front lines. And I know your brother Andrew is going to also help us with some of those extra supplies that he's gotten there in the state of New York. So it's a great partnership. I, I want to say thank you to the movie stars like Mark Ruffalo, Sean Penn, and many others that have been donating their uh, time, their money, and also uh, getting the word out on what's happening here in the Navajo Nation and clear across the country, uh, matter of fact, in all tribal communities. Right. Now, here's what bothers me, okay? Uh, this story piqued my interest, not because it's a good story for New York um, and my brother being the governor. It's because it is appalling to me that New York has to cut a deal or get into a cooperation agreement with the Navajo Nation yeah. in Arizona. I mean, where the hell is the federal government? Mm -hmm. And then we start doing the research oh, and everything people were telling me is true. You're getting bad tests. They're telling you you got to pay for your own tests. Yeah. Uh, they're not paying attention to the information. Mm -hmm. They're not coming to you. And it's not like they're doing you a favor. You have agreements with the government mm -hmm. about what they're supposed to do Absolutely. and not do. What is the reality about how you have been respected or disrespected under what's supposed to be the law? Absolutely. We have a treaty relationship, a special relationship with the federal go government. 150 plus years ago, our Navajo citizens were taken off of this land, taken on a long walk over 400 plus miles to a place called Fort Sumner. And they were ready to take us to Oklahoma and Florida. But our ancestors back then and our uh, leaders back then said, no, we want to go back to our homeland. And so they uh, signed that treaty, and that treaty was our reason for going back to our homeland. There was a reciprocal relationship here where the Navajo people at that time said, United States, if you were ever in trouble, Navajo people will be there to help. And guess what, Chris? You probably heard about the Navajo Code Talkers utilizing our mm -hmm. language in order to win World War II. 
So tribal nations throughout the country have contributed greatly to this free country of ours. And guess what? And sometimes the first citizens of this country are at the bottom of the list when it comes to federal aid. And that's what uh, we have been trying to say for the past uh, uh, several weeks now is, okay, why doesn't federal aid go directly to tribal nations rather than a pass through through federal government, uh, federal agencies or the states? It should go directly to the citizen that is intended for. And it's no irony uh, that, you know, we had a nurse on last night from Phoenix uh, who went out and silently stood in the middle of a protest of people saying that this was a violation of their freedom, making them stay home. And meanwhile, you got the reservation there, number three in case concentration. uh, And you're having to reach out to states on the other side of the country to get help because the federal Mm -hmm. government uh, is leaving you in the breach. So, President uh, Nez, I wanted people to know the reality. Uh, Please know you've got a channel. Um, through me to tell people the reality of what's happening on the reservation. Well, let me just end with this, Chris. You know, this is a a great example of a sovereign state, state of New York, and a sovereign tribal nation working together because of the lack of federal resources and aid. You know, Andrew, myself, we're not just going to feel sorry for ourselves. We're going to step up and uh, bless our citizens' hearts for stepping up to the plate to help each other out. This is a great story of resilience, of overcoming tough times. And we're all in this together, Chris, all of us throughout the country. We all need to listen to those healthcare professionals, those doctors, those nurses, those police officers out there. There are warriors on the front lines that are there helping our citizens. So let's all around the country listen to those healthcare professionals. And the best place to be right now is at home. Thank you, Chris. It is the right message, Mr. President. Thank you for delivering it on the show. And again, uh, we are a call away. God bless you. And I wish you the best there. And I hope that this is in some way uh, able to make its way through without too much damage to the people that you're in charge of. Thank you, Mr. President. All right, look. It's the third density, number three density of cases in the country. And it's being so undertreated by the underserved by the federal government that New York has to get involved. Like New York doesn't have enough trouble already. Well, why is that the best we can do? More context, the so-called forgotten pandemic of 1918. Why was it called that? What should it teach us today? The health professor and best-selling officer who investigated one of history's greatest medical crises He's going to join us because you know the rule, right? What happens if you don't learn the lessons of history? You are doomed to repeat. Next. All right. A president not being honest with the American people about the dangers of the virus. States choosing to reopen early, all in the middle of an election year. I'm not talking about now. That was the same situation in 1918 with the Spanish flu. So what can we learn and hopefully not repeat? Joining us now is John Barry, Tulane University professor and best-selling author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It's good to have you with us. Uh, thanks. And first, let me say I'm glad you and your family seem to be doing pretty well. We are the norm. 
you know, you get sick, goes through the whole family. And we're just being transparent so people know they're not alone when they suffer this way. And if others are worried about what it looks like, they can look at it uh, through this family with a coronavirus casa here right now, Casa de Cuomo. Um, so, Professor, when you look at 1918 and the politics and the antics, how similar is what you're seeing now? Well, the reasons are different, but the results are very similar uh, because we were at war. Well, we were we were at war, and Wilson didn't want to deflect any attention from the war. He was afraid that any bad news would hurt morale and hurt the war effort, uh, and and that's why the government was lying, and the lies then were echoed by public health leaders, uh, not only nationally but locally. There was no Tony Fauci back then. Uh, so we have that similarity. Uh, they did eventually too slowly. Uh, most cities closed down. Uh, similar, not quite as extreme as we're doing now, actually. The cities that closed down earlier and stayed closed longer did better, uh, not only at the time, but when it came to the economic recovery afterwards, uh, those cities did better as well. What lesson should we learn that you're not sure we have? Well, the first lesson is to tell the truth. Uh, people can deal with reality, uh, rumor, fear, confusion. That does not help uh, accomplish anything. Uh, that's really the first lesson. If you want to mobilize a society, you need to trust the public and if you expect them to trust you, you have to trust them. And that means the truth. Uh, I think your brother's doing a great job of that. And there are other leaders around uh, the world who have done it. I think the governor of Louisiana, where I am in New Orleans and the mayor here, I think have done a good, good jobs. Uh, that's the yeah. first lesson. Uh, the second lesson is, you know, by analyzing what happened in 1918, beginning in the uh, George W. Bush administration, and I, I was part of that effort, uh, we began to plan on what kind of steps we could take in the event of another pandemic, because everybody in infectious disease who knows anything about it knew that there would be another pandemic, although we expected it to be influenza, not this virus. Right. And what about the sense of what we learned or should have learned about reopening too soon and how to deal with the anxiety of wanting to get open again and the balance of public health and public interest? No. Well, I mean, the pressures back then were remarkably similar. The business community kept pressing. Uh, there were cities that reopened too soon. There, there was, you know, San Antonio is a perfect example. Uh, much like Georgia, uh, they were one of the last cities to issue any closing orders. Much like Georgia, they were just about the earliest to lift the closing orders. And San Antonio ended up with 53% of the entire population getting sick. 98% of every single household in the city had at least one person sick. Uh, hopefully that it turns out not to be what happens in Georgia. None of us wanna see anybody get sick, but I think the actions taken there are, are dangerous. It's very interesting. And one bright spot is, uh, as I read in your book, uh, the media, uh, because of such widespread support for the war, they were complicit in hiding the reality of what was going on with this. At least this time, you do see um, 
people are keeping it pretty straight about what the public interest is and what information has to get out there and not getting caught up in other stuff for the most part. John Barry, thank you very much uh, for your insight. Appreciate it. And I hope you stay well. Thank you. All right. Uh, another a group to keep your eye on, okay? Veterans. Uh, they're suffering right now uh, uniquely, and they are uniquely vulnerable. We're not even sure the VA is counting the dead accurately. So when we come back, we're going to talk to a veteran himself to help the veterans help themselves. Next. This is a hard time for veterans. Uh, a lot of them are elderly and at risk with underlying conditions. A lot of them are dealing with PTSD and other issues. And the social distancing, the shutdowns, can make symptoms worse. The VA says the number of veterans seeking mental health care skyrocketed in March when most stay-at-home orders went in place. There's a massive jump in phone call appointments and group teletherapy and virtual counseling. Uh, Jeremy Harrell is an Iraq War veteran and founder of the Veterans Club in Kentucky, which is giving support to those who are struggling. Sir, thank you for your service and thank you for your service once again in helping your brothers and sisters in need. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. It's my pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Um, tell us about the need. What are you seeing? What's going on out there? Well, we're seeing a lot of um, a, a, an increase in mental health issues amongst the veteran community for a lot of the different reasons. It's, it's unique uh, for veterans. It's not quite the same as those who uh, have not served. Uh, for example, those are the most vulnerable veterans, the veterans who have suicidal thoughts or have debilitating PTSD and, and, and other mental health issues. Um, the uncertainty, the kind of chaos of the situation and the fear of the unknown uh, is, is very triggering for a lot of these veterans. And, and what I've noticed um, as I've been closely monitoring this situation is even above food insecurity concerns and even above finance, um, personal finances, the mental health concern has been light years ahead. In fact, I asked the community what, what about this pandemic was, was the most concerning, and it was their mental health. And so we have a, a, a problem uh, within the community right now that we need to address a lot better than we have been. And so because we can't always depend on, on government and depend on federal uh, agencies, we take it into our own hands to ensure that we serve our veterans the right way. First of all, I hope that sinks in with the audience. How appalling is that? How often do we hear all our leaders and everybody say, we support the troops, we love them, they're our heroes. You heard what he just said, Jeremy, right? That he can't depend on the federal government the way he should be able to, that he can't depend on the rest of us, so they have to help themselves. How embarrassing for us. And, you know, there's also a distinction to be had there uh, in terms of veterans versus the rest of the civilian society. Uh, there's stigma for all of us. But especially in the veteran community, there's a culture uh, clash with coming forward and saying that you have mental health issues. Um, you guys are taught to suffer in silence. You're taught to endure. Uh, and often this is portrayed as weakness when that vulnerability is definitely strength. So what is your message to the brothers and sisters out there who served about what they should be reaching out for during this time of need or at least open to? Yeah, you know, my message is very clear and in, in, in that uh, when, when we were told and trained to suck it up and drive on and like you said, to suffer in silence, 
and, and, and not be vulnerable about what's going on within ourselves. Uh, that doesn't serve us when we're back home, right? That, that, that has its place in combat, right? Because we often have to adapt and overcome the situations where we're in there. But back here, we need to support each other. We need to be transparent and vulnerable, and we need to be willing and encouraged by others, uh, particularly uh, those who say they support us. They need to do a better job of encouraging us to be able to talk about these things without judgment and without uh, making us feel like we're broken. Like, I hate that word, you know, the word broken. We're not broken. Like, the veterans are some of the most resilient people in the world. In fact, we're assets, and we have been, and we still can be. And so my message is is to don't be afraid to to announce that you're struggling right now, because with, without doing that, we can't help you. And I know personally, uh, we want to help. We want to do all we can to enhance your quality of life, but not just the veteran, their whole family. We focus on the whole family. And so I just encourage veterans to uh, to get out of the mindset that we must just suck it up and drive on. We don't have to do that anymore. That, that served us at one time, but it doesn't anymore. So, so reach out um, and, and be a voice. Uh, if you're feeling like you're not getting the support you need, call people out. That's how we got to, that's what we have to do. Right. And, and, and only when you do that, do you get results. Listen, uh, we hear the call. Uh, we're asking for Secretary Wilkie to come on the show at his convenience to talk about what's going on in the VA, what the needs are and what aren't being met. Um, that is a demand that we should be making on your behalf. Um, Jeremy Harrell, thank you very much. Uh, after the segment, I'll get any information you want people to have. I'll put it out on social media for the show and personally to kind of spread the word. And we are an open channel for you to get any information out that you need to the men and women who served. Okay. Yes, Chris. And I, I appreciate that because, uh, you're the first to reach out to want to talk about this angle of the pandemic. And it's really surprising to me and disappointing. So I appreciate you uh, being a patriot and inviting us on so that we can talk about these much important discussions. Thank you. I owe you guys everything. Uh, you do the fight so that we can have the freedoms. And I've literally had you keep me alive uh, in Iraq and uh, elsewhere. So the thanks goes to you. It is the least I can do. Be well. God bless. Stay healthy. All right. Thank and you. the rest of you. Thank you for watching. I hope that you reach out to people uh, this weekend. Take a little time. We're isolated, but we don't have to be alone. All right. The news continues here on CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.